The yellow star of David from Nazi Germany. Gangland or tribal tattoos. A Freemason's handshake. What do these three things have in common? They are all famous identity markers. Identity markers are items or symbols or actions that go to define who we are. They define who we belong to. They define whether we are in or out of a certain group. They define who or what is most important to us. They can even define what we live for. Let's think of some of the identity markers that are relevant to us today. A kilt or clan tartan. In Scotland, it defines which historic family you belong to. The language you speak. If you speak Gaelic, for example, it defines your upbringing, not just to a country, but a particular part of that country, the highlands and islands of the West. A flag. Some of us display flags at our home, on our car, whether it be the Scottish flag or the Union flag or the 12 stars of the EU. It defines who we understand ourselves to be part of. A football shirt defines who you support and often where you come from. They're worn with great pride. A member's card at the golf club. It defines you're in the club. Without one, you don't get to play. A wedding ring tells everyone that you belong to your spouse only. You're part of an exclusive relationship. Even the way we dress, our style or fashion sense goes a long way to telling all who see us who we are. Our clothes and our hairstyle can speak of our wealth or our status and our class. Our clothes speak of how seriously we take ourselves. Our clothes can speak of what music, what culture, what lifestyle we are into. Of course, there are many more, but all of these are clear identity markers. When we see them in other people, we immediately know something important about them. We understand who they belong to, often before they've even opened their mouths to speak to us. Our passage today is all about an identity marker. Circumcision was the ultimate identity marker of the Jews. In Genesis 17, way back at the beginning of the Jews' national story, God had commanded Abraham to be circumcised. It was to form a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham's family. Ever since that day, circumcision had become a badge of identity. Its importance was taken almost to the point of obsession. You see, the Jewish people were defined by the Jewish law. Keeping the law set them apart. In Jewish eyes, it set them above all other racial groups. 
eating kosher food, keeping special days and festivals, making sacrifices at the temple, was all part of this. But with all those examples that I've just named, it was often difficult to see precisely who was in and who was out. Who was devotedly keeping the law of Moses and who played at it or pretended You couldn't be sure that people were only eating kosher food at every meal behind closed doors. You couldn't be sure who had been to Jerusalem for a festival recently. In addition, with some elements of the law, there were long-running debates over what it meant to keep it exactly. Even the Jews debated what you could and could not do on the Sabbath, for example. But compared to all the doubt that might have hung over the other elements of Jewish law-keeping, with circumcision, there was none. It was unequivocal. You were either circumcised or you weren't. You were either in or out. You were either a Jew or not a Jew. You couldn't be half-circumcised. You couldn't be a little bit circumcised if it suited you. It was a surefire test of your real identity. And that is why circumcision became the touchstone for the major argument that is raging and that Paul thought that he had to write this letter to respond to, to help the Galatians. The whole argument that Galatians was written to to respond to was about identity. It was about whether to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian, you also had to become a Jew. And Paul is being hammered by a group of Jewish nationalists for his teaching that Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to become acceptable to God. Paul's point is that Gentiles don't need to take on all of the old Jewish identity markers because there is one identity marker that overshadows and eclipses everything else. Jesus Christ. Whether you believed, followed and belonged to Jesus was all that counted. And Paul is travelling the Mediterranean region, teaching that when Jesus died and rose again and then ascended into heaven to pour out his spirit and all believers, he blew the doors off Judaism. There is now only one family of God's people, a family made up of Jew and Gentile together. Because of what Jesus Christ achieved, Gentiles don't have to keep all the Jewish law to be acceptable to God because they are invited to become Christians on completely equal terms without it. In Paul's eyes, the law as an identity marker of the Jewish nation was completely redundant. Now that Christ had been born from the Jewish line to live, die and rise again, the exclusive purpose of the Jewish nation had been fulfilled. God's people were now completely free from the law. The guidance for living and the sense of identity that it had once brought was now to be found in following Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit 
living in believers' hearts. So no, Gentiles did not need to eat kosher food. They did not need to keep all the holy days and Jewish festivals. And they definitely did not need to be circumcised. Unity in Christ is all that counts now. Unity for Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, one family together worshipping Jesus. For Jesus is now risen and reigning, the one Lord and King of all the world. And through the cross, God has made it possible for all of creation to call him Father, not just the Jews. Indeed, that is absolutely what he wanted. So we can clearly see how at odds Paul was with his accusers. And we all know that when we start to talk about identity issues and nationalism, things get heated very quickly. Just look at the Brexit debacle. In our reading today, we can sense the level of animosity very clearly. Verse 4 tells us that the Judaizers, Paul's accusers, were now spying on him. They were trying to find anything they could to trip him up. But Paul was resolutely standing firm. Let's remind ourselves of what has happened up to this point. After his conversion, Paul had travelled into the Gentile world, part of which was Galatia, now modern-day Turkey, and he'd gone there to preach the gospel. Many people had come to faith and a new church had been planted. And Paul had begun the work of discipling these new Christians, but he'd not been able to finish the job. Before too long, he'd been called away to other parts of the region to see to issues there and to spread the gospel further. But when Paul had left Galatia, the trouble started. The nationalist Jewish Christians had spotted the weakness and stepped into the leadership vacuum. With Paul out of their way, they'd begun their attack. And they insulted Paul and they called into question his authority and they told lies. There were no depths that they wouldn't sink to. They'd sidled up to the new Galatian Christians, telling them, you've got it wrong. You've misunderstood. Paul really did want you to get circumcised, you know. He just hadn't got round to telling you that bit yet. No doubt he was about to do it just before he was called away. Let's do it now, before he gets back. Then you'll be a proper Christian, just like us. Now when you think that these Colossians were very young in their faith, this was a compelling argument. These were seemingly experienced believers, giving them the discipleship that Paul hadn't had time to give them. And Paul is now writing this letter because the situation has reached a crisis. Some of the new Gentile converts in Galatia are starting to go over to this errant teaching. They're starting to drift away from the truth of the gospel. And we get the sense through the sheer anger and venom of Paul's writing in this letter that he is utterly sick of being attacked 
and of lies being told about him and his message. Who wouldn't be? You and I would feel the same. But more importantly, he's greatly worried about people being taken away from God. The gospel being trampled on. And in his despair and in his worry, he must have prayed and prayed and prayed, earnestly seeking God's help. Well, in our reading today, we find that he got it. In verse 2, we read that God had granted Paul a revelation. He had given Paul a message, told him what to do in response. Paul was to go to the mother church in Jerusalem and make his case there. As ever with God, this was a very wise, very logical suggestion. If the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem legitimised Paul's ministry, particularly the well-renowned and well-respected apostles of Peter, James and John, it would shut Paul's accusers up for good. So after 14 years of ministry to the Gentiles, throughout which the hostility against him was constantly growing, Paul travelled to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to engage in a dry academic debate because they have the tendency of becoming very abstract. No, Paul takes Titus with him, a real person, to serve as a test case. Titus was a Gentile Christian, one of Paul's earliest converts. And since then, he'd lived an unmistakable and unimpeachable Christian life. Titus also was now serving God, preaching the gospel to others, seeing great fruit to his ministry. In Paul's mind, Titus was clear evidence that God was at work among and through the Gentiles just as much as the Jews. Of course, here's the crux. Titus wasn't circumcised. So Paul's plan is this. If the Jerusalem apostles recognised that Titus was a legitimate Christian without being compelled to be circumcised, then neither would the Galatians have to go through with the same procedure. Can you see what Paul is doing here? Last week... We saw how Paul stressed at length that his gospel was independent. It came direct from Jesus on the Damascus Road on the day of his conversion. Paul hadn't made it up. He hadn't been influenced by errant teachers. But Paul is arguing the case for there being one united family of God's people. And if the Jewish Christian apostles of Peter, James and John, the pillars of the early church, validated the integrity of his message, it would form a powerful unity. And a united church of Jew and Gentile Christians was vital to preach God's one family. A united church was vital to spread the gospel far and wide, right to the ends of the earth. So what was the outcome of this dramatic test case, pivotal as it was to the rest of Christian history? The fact that I am not circumcised today is largely due to what happened when they met 
with Titus. Well, Paul spells it out in verses 7 to 10. First of all, Peter, James and John were so convinced by Titus that they felt no need to add anything extra to Paul's message. In producing such an outstanding believer as Titus, Paul's gospel was clearly not deficient. Therefore, he need not add any extra requirements from the Jewish law to it. In particular, Paul never had to ask the Gentiles to get circumcised. Secondly, the Jewish apostles were happy to agree a division of labour. God was clearly at work in Paul. He clearly had a very specific calling for him. So Paul should go to the Gentiles and Peter should continue to go to the Jews. They were to be partners in spreading one gospel. After all, it's about the one Lord Jesus Christ, saviour of God's one world. And before Paul left Jerusalem, they offered him the right hand of friendship and fellowship, a seal of their unity in gospel mission. And the third thing that came out of it was that Paul was asked to remember the poor in Jerusalem. At that time, many Jewish Christians were being persecuted there, and this was on top of some very bad harvests. Famine was sweeping through the community. The apostles had no extra requirements for Paul's ministry. All they asked is that he kept the communication lines open with his Jewish Christian brothers and sisters who also needed him as much as the Gentiles did. And Paul states in verse 10 that this was no obligation at all. He was eager to do this very thing. Indeed, if you read his other letters, he writes quite extensively about taking up a collection to resource the Christian believers in Jerusalem. So to sum it all up, the outcome of Paul's test case was a landmark ruling. The only identity marker that ever counts from now on is whether you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Gentiles did not need to become Jews in order to become Christians, to become acceptable to God. They are already welcome on equal terms. God is creating one worldwide family and all believers are now free from the Jewish law. Those demanding circumcision amongst all the other intricacies of kosher food and sacred days, well, they can sling their hook. Paul was to be free of them. His converts in the newly planted churches right around the Mediterranean need not be hoodwinked by them any longer. So what does all of this mean for us today here on Isla in 2020? Well, first of all, it means that there is absolutely no identity marker that comes before Jesus. Andrew James Burnham is a married male. He's European. He's English. He's an academic minister. He's a Wiccan Wanderers fan who likes indie music. He's politically left of centre. He's a Baptist. All of that, utterly insignificant. The only thing, the only thing that counts in terms of my identity is that I am a follower of Christ. 
I am a brother on equal terms with all of my other Christian brothers and sisters around the world through all the denominations, whatever age or gender or race or background. I am part of one family and I need to treat all the people in that family equally and welcome them into my life. And it doesn't just go for me, that goes for all of us. Our church here on Isla must be one inclusive church. You know, even within churches, there are identity markers. Some worship with an organ, some with guitars and drums. Some congregations dress in suits, some in jeans and t-shirts. Some congregations use candles and liturgy, some are more austere. All of that, utterly irrelevant, utterly meaningless. We must welcome all followers of Jesus however they sing or dress or aesthetically worship God. God loves the diversity in his family and we need to start to learn to appreciate it too. Paul and Jerusalem church found unity in mission. They agreed to go in all different directions as God called them, but they were united because they shared the same gospel. And still today, we are to look for unity with other churches in mission. We must look for what God is doing in different ways, with different people, in different traditions. Because God is at work in Baptists and Pentecostals, the Church of Scotland, the Free Church, the Brethren, the Catholics. That's why it's so good for us to visit other churches. We have our eyes open, we experience new things that God is doing. That's why it's so important we attend initiatives like the Week of Christian Unity Prayer Service next Sunday. The only identity marker that counts now is following Christ. In Christ, the one family of God is united. We must add no law to the membership available through faith in him. We are one family, serving together, preaching one gospel. Yes, we will interpret things slightly differently to other believers. But there is no excuse whatsoever not to remain united around what's integral. God made us all. Christ died to forgive all who believe in him. He rose again to bring life eternal. And the Holy Spirit dwells in all believers and is guiding them to the new heavens and new earth when Christ returns. This is the gospel. This is the only identity marker that counts. And like Paul, we must remain faithful to its proclamation at all costs.